Um, hey, Casket Empty is a Old Testament and New Testament curriculum. It's an acronym where each letter of casket symbolizes an era of the Old Testament. Each letter of empty symbolizes an era of the New Testament. Let's do the eras for the Old Testament here. C stands for? A. S. Sinai. K. Kings. E. Exile. And T. Temple. Great. And then the New Testament, which I thought I was going to be teaching in the spring. It might be next year. We'll kind of see about that. But E stands for expectation, which is the intertestamental period, 400 years between Malachi and the very first, well, when the Messiah appears. What happens? That's actually an incredibly important moment in history, of course. So what are the expectations that continue to crescendo during that time? M is the arrival of the Messiah. P is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, which would be Pentecost. T is all of the New Testament teaching, the letters of John, Paul, James going out. And then Y focuses on Revelation, and that's called Yet to Come. But the idea um, for, for Casket Empty is that God is telling a story about how he's saving us, how he's redeeming us. That's the theme of the story. It's a redemptive narrative, but that narrative is not just fable. It's not storybook. It's told through the events of history. God is using each one of these pieces in time to tell a redemptive narrative. You might be able to point to some historical moments in your life where because you now have your eyes on God, you realize, well, God used that event in my life to redeem me, to save me in some way. But the way that he does so is through his only son, Jesus Christ. And so this imagery that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, but then raises from the dead to promise us new life, that we have a coming resurrection from the dead as well. That's why his empty casket, the casket empty, is actually good news. It's the greatest news, the gospel for his people. And we've been going through this now for about 10 weeks. Today, here we are talking temple. We're going to finish a little bit of exile with Daniel. We didn't get to him last time. And next week, um, don't skip next week. Next week is actually going to be a really important time for us. There's going to be a lot of dialogue for us to just review these principles. I've always taught this in 10 weeks, and I'm really glad to have an 11th week to just kind of do a lot of review where we'll comb back through this stuff. Speaking of review, it's been a couple weeks since we've met. What empire takes the northern kingdom, going back to the kings, takes the northern kingdom into captivity? Assyria starts with an A. Ready? We're thinking the ABCs. Assyria. And what year did that happen in? If you look at your timeline, it's right here. The fall of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, falls in 722 BC. Okay? So this is an important date to know, and actually it coincides with Ahaz, Hezekiah, basically right here. So it's, the timelines don't totally line up. Okay, how about the empire that takes the southern kingdom into captivity? Babylonians. And when does Jerusalem fall? 586. Great. So three deportations of people actually being carted off. Remember Daniel, who we're going to talk about, was carted off in the first deportation in 605. Why is Daniel taken? 
Um, yes, he was, he was young and he was probably a prince. He was related. He wasn't the king's son, but he's probably in the royal family somehow. A lot of people say that um, Daniel, um, Hananiah, Mishael, Hazariah, these are nephews of the king. That's what a lot of people say. Um, good. What if you were poor or old or ill? Would they cart you off? You stay in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, what prophet witnesses all the events of Jerusalem's fall and tells the Jew that God has, the Jews that God has sent this punishment? Who is that? Jeremiah. Yeah, so he's around for the last five kings of Jerusalem. He sees Jerusalem fall. He laments about it, the book of Lamentations. And he is not taken into exile. Instead, eventually, he's going to be taken into Egypt. What prophet, while in exile, has a vision of the presence of God leaving the temple? Ezekiel. Great. So that's where we see the glory cloud, which had been sitting on top of the temple. It's lifted up. And this is the single biggest horror to God's people. Why? Great. God's presence is removed. And the whole idea, how all of this was supposed to work, is God, you were supposed to be with us. Um, and as we closed last, our last session, there are promises that are coming from the prophets of the exile in the temple period. What you guys will hear is these minor prophets especially, they are coming to fever pitch about some promises that God has always said that he would do. And they're, they're starting to clarify. We heard Jerry preach on this initial promise. What do the stars represent? The Great, the descendants of Abraham. I'm going to um, bless the nations that, that comes out of you and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, sand on the sea, and I'll give you a land as well. What does the gift tell us? Is it something that God's people have to work for? No, it's a gift by grace. God is going to bless his people because God just chose to do that, and Abraham believes God. But does God care about our righteous conduct? The fact is, the Old Testament shows us that we don't walk uprightly. Well, is God going to do anything about that? The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, I'm going to take your heart of, of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my way. So we're talking blessing to all nations, uh, a gift of grace. Um, somehow God's spirit is going to enable us to walk in righteousness. These are the promises that they don't originate in the New Testament. They originate in the prophets. And then we hear this. A king is still coming who will reign on the throne forever. The covenant that God made with which king? David. King, the Davidic covenant is still in place. And so you hear Zechariah saying, your king comes to you, humble and riding on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And he's saying this in a time period where they're under Persian rule. What, what king of Jerusalem? We, what king of Israel? We have no king, right? So these promises keep coming. And then lastly, there's temple language. God is going to come into his temple, a, a dwelling place for God will exist within his people. So 
all of these ideas of restoration are still coming. So have those in your brain, and they're right here under exile as well. Daniel. Daniel is carted off in 605 with his cronies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their names are going to be changed to Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then Daniel is going to be called um, Belteshazzar. Open up to the book of Daniel, if you have your Bibles with you. These youths, you know, maybe 15 years old when they're carted off, and they have promising intellect and promising features and health, and so they are educated in all of the literature and language of the Babylonians so that they can serve the Babylonian king. Although they're in exile, the Lord is gracious to them and grants them wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar finds them to be superior in knowledge to all of the magicians and enchanters in his realm, and they're all going to get promoted super rapidly. It's important to note that Daniel doesn't read chronologically. It really bounces around. It's like Jeremiah in that way. But Daniel serves from, amazingly, from 605 BC all the way through the rise of the Persian king who's going to sack Babylon in 539. His name is King Cyrus. Between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, there's a Babylonian crown prince named Belshazzar, and so he's talked about in here as well. But one of Daniel's features God has given him the ability to interpret dreams. So dreams are going to be a huge theme in the book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this, a statue. And the statue sort of terrifies Nebuchadnezzar. He asks Daniel to interpret this dream. Daniel actually tells him what the dream is, not just, you know, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't Here's the dream I had. Tell me what it means. He tells Daniel and all of his astrologers and magicians, no, 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 you tell me the dream that I had, and that way I know you're telling the truth. Well, all the astrologers say, there's no, nobody can do that. Daniel says the same thing. No man on earth can do that, but there's a God in heaven who interprets dreams. He says, this is the dream that you had, Nebuchadnezzar, of a statue whose head was made of gold, whose chest and arms were made of silver, whose torso was made of bronze, and whose legs and feet were made of the combination of iron and clay. And he says, these are the kingdoms that will arise after you. In many ways, the opulence of your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon is like gold. But you, your kingdom is going to be sacked by the Medo-Persians, King Cyrus, and they're like silver. And then after them will come the kingdom of Greece, Alexander the Great is going to come in uh, 323 to take over. And then Rome is like the kingdom of iron and clay because it has such a mixture of cultures and influences. And in many ways, it is strong. It's the strongest empire that you've ever seen, like iron. But in other ways, namely religiously, it's brittle. But then the end of the dream tells the whole story. Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed that another kingdom was coming that doesn't look anything like this. It's not on any part of the statue. Instead, he dreams of a stone 
being taken out of a large boulder that comes and smashes this statue so that its fragments turn to dust and blows away in the, in the wind like this. <laughs> yeah? And that is God's everlasting kingdom. If you want to stay a few minutes afterward, I'd be glad to play that for you a few more times. This is what I do. God's everlasting kingdom. Um, If there's one theme in the book of Daniel, it's earthly kingdoms will be destroyed. Earthly kingdoms don't last. God's everlasting kingdom is coming. And, And every story in Daniel is emphasizing that. I read this book recently and was just praying on it. And God hit me with this question. Jeff, what kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you building? When we go about our daily lives, whose interest, whose comfort, whose kingdom are we investing into? And that might be just the greatest question that that God brings to us. And in his mercy, he's telling us, hey, every kingdom that you build that's not my kingdom, that's not a part of it, is going to be destroyed. And it's going to be blown away like dust in the wind, like it was never even there. Isaiah says, um, all men are like grass, like the flower of the field. It has its day, but it withers and it's nothing. But the word of the Lord stands forever. So Daniel interprets dreams, and then Daniel has his own dream, a terrifying dream. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Instead, it's, it's Daniel's. He has a dream of the exact same four kingdoms that are coming. They're also on the timeline. Babylon is a lion, Persia as a bear, Greece as a leopard with two heads, and Rome as this unspeakable um, creature with horns. What book of the New Testament does this sound a lot like? Revelation. Revelation. You really see a reprise, reprise of this in Revelation. And then Daniel says, but there was one, um, but he said in his image, he saw the ancient of days, which is a way of referring to God, ancient of days sitting on his throne. And then there came like one, like a son of man who came to reign forever. So a human being who would reign forever. So in this way, we're starting to get a more vivid picture of God's kingdom is eternal, like that boulder. And who is that eternal king? Well, he'll look like not a beast. He'll look like a human being, the son of man. When you read your gospels, what is perhaps the most common term Jesus used to refer to himself? Son of man. Which really confuses the people around him. Because he's, he's referring back to this vision, and they're like, oh, I don't think you can, I mean, he's not calling himself God, but I'm not, I don't think son of man is kosher. I don't think you can say that. In Matthew 26, just before Jesus' crucifixion, the high priest has Jesus on trial before the Jewish council. And the high priest says, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus responds, quoting the vision of Daniel, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Babylonian kingdom is indeed going to fall to the Persians. King Belshazzar, one of the last Babylonian kings, is throwing a a party, 
a thousand guests. He's boasting in himself. The goblets that they're drinking out of and the plates they're using have come out of the temple in Jerusalem that they brought that are supposed to be used for the service of the Lord. They're using to eat off of. And so in judgment, that very night, his kingdom was divided between the Medes and the Persians. The Medo-Persian king Cyrus conquers Babylon and murders Belshazzar in 539. Let's read Daniel chapter 9 and verse 4. As you're turning there, uh, let me take you back about 400 years. Remember the temple is built by Solomon way back here in sometime about 950 BC or so. When Solomon builds the temple and he dedicates it, he gets down on his knees and he spreads his arms out like this. And in this very long prayer that you can read about uh, in the Samuels and the Chronicles, he says, Lord, if we sin against you and another empire conquers us and takes us into captivity, if that were to happen, because that was pretty common back then, when we pray to you and say, oh Lord, we have acted wickedly, we have acted sinfully, and we turn our eyes back to you, O oh Lord, hear from heaven and forgive us and cause us to return. That's the prayer that he, that he prays, okay? Now fast forward 400 years back to Daniel. Here's Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. It's a direct quote from Solomon. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, get this, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us belongs open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To you, O Lord, belongs, to us, excuse me, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of our Lord, our God, by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, way back here in Sinai, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him, right? The curses of the covenant. He has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing us into this calamity. <clears throat> For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor. That Hebrew word is grace. We have not asked the Lord for his grace turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Notice what Daniel is doing here. Is he saying, Lord, our, our sin really isn't that bad. You're being harsh. Is he saying, Lord, we promise to work harder and get ourselves out of this? 
No, instead he says, we have to appeal in this moment to your grace, your favor. He doesn't build a case for himself. He says, Lord, we've, we've acted totally wickedly. We confess it. Would you turn your favor toward us? And in this turning moment, uh, God's people, granted by Cyrus, are able to go back to the land. Um, skip to verse 20, same chapter. While he was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people before Israel, I presented my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and, the understand, and understand the vision. Anthony is basically going to say something that's a little cryptic, but the idea is that restoration is coming. Amazing encouragement. When we confess our sins, rather than trying to make light of our sins, we just we ask the Lord to give us favor and listen to those reassurances while you were praying at the beginning of your prayer. Oh man, greatly loved. Amazing stuff. Um, remember that pattern from Genesis? Sin, judgment, grace. We see it again. And then that leads us into the temple period. The dates for that are the captivity uh, is going to start officially. Sorry, temple. The Jews are allowed to return to start rebuilding their temple in 539, and it ends with Malachi being written in 430. Here's the books that coincide with this period. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are here pretty much in the middle of the Old Testament. Why are they there? Does anybody want to take a guess? Excellent. So they're stories, they're narrative, not poetry. So the Old Testament is broken up, basically narrative poetry. You can almost think of it that way. And so here they are placed right at the end of the narrative books. Job is the first book of what is called wisdom literature. It's poetic. Okay? But what else is poetic? The prophets. The prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We really get those three, Haggai and Zechariah, are in 520 BC, and Malachi is almost a century later, standing on his own in 430 BC. So Malachi is the only 5th century prophet. He's kind of all alone out there. All right, 539, here's what happens. King Cyrus defeats Babylon. Um, 200 years before this happen, happens, Isaiah prophesies in the 8th century that there's a man named Cyrus who's going to be used as God's instrument. Prophesies him by name. Who says of Cyrus, this is Isaiah 44, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So there's already a correspondence of the temple's going to be allowed to be rebuilt. 
It must have been so confusing to people hearing Isaiah because they're like, temple rebuilt? We have a temple. A lot lot happens between then and now. Um, So the decree of Cyrus allows the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the ruined temple. You can read about this at the beginning of Ezra, Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Even though Ezra wasn't in Jerusalem at the time, I'm not even sure he was born yet, but he's the one who chronicles that. And the temple building begins under a guy named Zerubbabel. His name is right here, Zerubbabel. He's going to be kind of the governor and the leader. And the prince, or excuse me, the priest at the time is a guy named Joshua, not to be confused with conquest narrative Joshua. Why is it significant that Zerubbabel's name is in this blue line? Somebody? Andrew? Yeah, line of the king. Great. And so I like the people that designed this banners because they were really deliberate about all these graphics the line almost fades away. There's a real mystery at the end of Chronicles and the beginning of, uh, what, in the book of Daniel. What happened to the king? There's nobody reigning there. Is the lineage totally broken? Remember Zedekiah, the technically the last king? All of his sons were killed before him. Then his eyes were gouged out, and he dies in exile without giving birth to anybody else. So what we learn is that King Jehoiachin was also in exile. And he, I don't know if he has children in an exile or he took some boys with him or what. I can't remember how old he was. You can look into that. But Zerubbabel is continuing the line. And then, this is really what Ezra uh, and Nehemiah is about. Both of these books talk about opposition to the work that's happening in Jerusalem. Ezra really talks about opposition to rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah talks about opposition to rebuilding what? The walls, right? And guess where that opposition is coming from? Remember how way back here with the Assyrians, they would cart people from Samaria off and cart other nations in. And when other people from different lands came in, they brought their their religions with them, their gods with them. Samaria had, was known for being half-breeds, which they actually were, and they also had a half-bred religion, syncretism. They've mixed Jew, Judaism with a lot of other things. Well, the Samaritans, they want to come help build the temple. And they're like, no, you can't help because you've got all sorts of really wonky ideas. If you worship this Lord God, certainly you can help, but you're worshiping all, all sorts of different things. And by the way, they were beginning to understand that the place of worship shouldn't even be in Jerusalem. It should be at Mount Gerizim, which you read about in John 4, at the woman at the well. So what do they do instead? They try to halt all of the work being done on the temple. There's two prophets that are going to arise, and they're telling God's people, rebuild the temple. Push through opposition, do what the Lord has told you to do. Those two prophets are Haggai and Zechariah. Their their message really is rebuild the temple. Let's talk about the hag. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So uh, the message, build God's house. 
Haggai acknowledges that the, going, what, that the going has been tough for those living in Jerusalem. But the reason for their lack of food, lack of rain, lack of clothing, lack of wages is because God has withheld his blessing until they finish his house. Haggai chapter 1 says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. There was a great witness in worship last week by a beautiful blonde woman talking about the capital campaign. That was my wife, Greta. It was this book that really convicted her, convicted us. We've been doing all sorts of... It's not always a direct application, one-to-one, from Old Testament into our lives, but you guys, man, it just hit us like a ton of bricks. We had a new garage door put in. Like, who needs a new garage door? We got a new one recently. And we're like, haven't been thinking much about God's house, thinking a lot about our own houses. Well, um, the work on God's temple resumes a little bit later under the Persian king Darius. And Haggai prophesies in chapter 2 that the glory, get this, the glory of this new temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. Hmm. People will stream in from all nations, it says, and it will be filled with glory. But here's the problem. Haggai says the people are still unclean. When the prophet Ezekiel has spoken about God's presence leaving the temple, it's because of the uncleanness of God's people. Thus, Ezekiel spoke of a time of restoration, when God would cleanse his people of their filth. Apparently, that hasn't happened yet. And then we've got Zechariah. Zechariah says, a royal branch for David will build God's temple. Really metaphorical kind of imagery language here. The royal branch of David building the temple, of course, well, who's of the line of David? Zerubbabel. Who's actually rebuilding the temple physically? Well, Zerubbabel. But there's overtones of another branch of David, the coming Christ, who will come into his temple and he'll be called the Anointed One Messiah. Hundreds of years later, the author of Hebrews will confirm that it's Jesus who's actually different from Zerubbabel because Jesus is righteous. Zechariah is talking about a righteous king, a king of righteousness. And Zechariah also says that king will also be the priest. Well, Hebrews is all about justifying Jesus as not only king, but also priest. So Zerubbabel's relationship with the priest at the time, Joshua, you've got king and priest, but Zechariah the prophet enfolds both of them into this coming anointed one who's going to be both king and priest. And because he speaks the word of God, Jesus is also perfect prophet. That's where we get prophet, priest, and king. Zechariah says God will dwell with his people, and that that king is going to come. And when he comes, he'll come with salvation, mounted on a donkey, Zechariah chapter 9 says. When Jesus tells two of his disciples to run ahead into Jerusalem and to untie a donkey 
and bring it to him, he's deliberately evoking this language from Zechariah. And that's what he rides in for his triumphal entry. Jerusalem is going to be a blessing to the nations. Zechariah says that God will be king over the entire earth. Remember the promise to Abraham. Yet in the period of the exile, God's people were not a blessing. Instead, people were hissing at them. Rather than a blessing, they were a curse. They had become a byword because of their covenant unfaithfulness. Zechariah says that one day God will save his people so that they become a blessing. This is Zechariah chapter 8. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, so I will save you and you will become a blessing. And then 516, this is the big um, kind of housewarming date because the temple is finally uh, finished. So just think they were allowed to return in 539, but they don't finish the temple until 516. Not because it took them literally 20 years to finish it. For a lot of that, it was like, looked like downtown San Diego. It was just like building projects not being done. Sacrifices are offered and um, people celebrate. They, they celebrate the Passover. In Ezra chapter 6, it talks about all of those who returned from the exile. Um, the Passover was being, beat, was being eaten by people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of their former ways. But here's the issue. What's different about this temple compared to when Solomon builds his? There is no, yeah, there's no glory cloud. There's no, oh, it totally disappeared, didn't it? That's great. Um, there's no narrative of the glory of God's presence filling the temple. There was for Solomon when they built the temple. If you go back even before that, the tabernacle, when the tabernacle was built, the end of Exodus, the last few verses are about God's glory filling it. There's something different about this. There is no presence of the Lord in this temple. The Persian Empire continues. This is when you get a relocation of the capital. In Babylon, the capital is the city of Babylon. It's a city-state. The capital for Persia is going to be Susa. And that's where we get the story of an incredibly important person named Esther. Esther, I think, is often neglected as a... This is sort of, uh, focus is on Jerusalem, but meanwhile, in Susa, this is what's happening. But there's something really key to understand about Esther. Even though it doesn't, what is Esther famous for as a book? It doesn't mention what, Valerie? Helping save the Jews by going to the king and risking her life. Yeah, beautiful, absolutely. And is God's name mentioned in Esther? That's right. Absolutely. So you see the rhythms of godliness there, right? But we, we think sometimes, oh, it doesn't mention God. It's not a very theological book. There's no, more bo there's, there's no book that proclaims God's providence and the way that he protects his people better than Esther. Here's why. What Valerie just said, the Jews were saved. What does that mean? There was a plot by a guy named Haman to kill all of the Jews. This is not just in Susa. This is all of the Persian Empire which at the time was the largest empire known to humanity. That would be an obliteration of God's people everywhere. 
It's not. Meanwhile, here's what's going on in Susa, not Jerusalem. It would have affected Jerusalem. All of the Jews would have been killed. And so it was all hinging on the actions of one woman because the decree had been made, it had been issued that on that particular date, all of the Jews were to be exterminated. It was going to happen. And Esther, this young Jewish girl, is influenced by her cousin, Mordecai, who's raised her. If you don't talk to the king, no one will. The, the Jews will die. It, it's all up to you. This is the linchpin moment of the Old Testament where all of this, all of it, just could have been for naught. And it's so late in the narrative. It's way, way out here. Everything could have ended again. But God in his providence gives this woman courage. She goes in and tells the king, uh, King, Artic king Xerxes, Ahasuerus, uh, you want to come over to my house for dinner? I got to explain something, <laughs> something to you. And then there's just this, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful narrative. It's amazing literature. It's just incredible. But it's so much more than that. It's how God preserves his people in that moment. So everything kind of riding on this moment of Esther's courage. For such a time as this, it says, God has raised up Esther to save his people. Um, meanwhile, we're going to fast forward several years. This is the second return from exile during the reign of Artaxerxes. And it's during this return that Ezra, a scribe and a priest, returns to Jerusalem. And Ezra is the one to really record what happened way back in 520 when they were building the temple. He records all of that. But when he comes, he is coming to lead in reform. He um, reads from the law. He leads his people in confession and covenant renewal. Obedience to the law is a high priority for Ezra. And he and the exiles pray for safety that they travel back to Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes has given them much gold and silver to be offered to God at the temple. The king is wary of the Lord's wrath coming upon him or his kingdom. But shortly after he arrives, he does all of this covenant renewal. He reinstitutes temple sacrifice. And then he learns that all of the exiles have been doing what? After they return, they've been marrying former foreign wives. Marrying foreign wives. And that was what got them into this whole trouble in the first place. Again, it, it, it's not a difference in um, nationality or ethnicity. That's not what it's about. God's worshiping people have been a mixed multitude since they left Egypt in the days of Moses. It's not just ethnic Israel we're talking. The point is what? What happens when you marry foreign wives? follow their gods. Absolutely. So King Solomon is just a perfect example of that. That is why Ezra is, you know, slaps his forehead so hard. Like, we can't be doing this anymore. We've just rebuilt the temple. We're instituting, reinstituting worship, and now we're going to be pulled unequally yoked, right? Pulled in directions to worship other gods. Ezra tears his tunic. He rips hair out of his beard and sits down appalled because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles, Ezra 9 says. And that evening, on his knees, he offers a prayer of confession. Kind of like Daniel. Listen to this. This is Ezra 9, 
verses 6 through 9. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our princes, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor, grace, has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Ezra acknowledges the guilt of the remnant, yet God has graciously punished them less than their sins deserve. Ezra is identifying and claiming that sin, judgment, grace pattern. Others join in weeping over their sin, and then the people follow the example of this king, King Manasseh, who you may remember as probably the worst king of the southern empire. But remember what Manasseh does after he repents and turns to the Lord. What does he do to those altars that he had offered his children on? He destroys them. He does the hard work that's involved in real repentance. They did the hard thing. They agreed to make a covenant with God, but they also put aside their foreign wives. Consider the importance of this step in confession. A promise not to walk in sin any longer. Uh, some of you may have read the book, Celebration of Discipline, by a guy named Richard Foster. I think this is such a helpful book, unpacking spiritual disciplines for us. In the book, uh, in the title, about confession. Richard Foster says confession that's really done properly should basically be threefold. The first move is called examination of conscience. That's where you're asking for God to make definite sins clear in your mind. So it's the idea that we, we're fallen people, but because of our fallenness, we have a foggy memory of what we've actually even done. That's why we ask the Lord to search us when we confess our sins. Lord, show me exactly what, how I've grieved you, how I've walked in unbelief. Secondly, sorrow. Ask for God to cultivate a deep regret of having offended his heart. I think that's often kind of where I stop. Lord, help me identify my sins. Give me your, give me your heart about it. But then, in order for this to be real confession, a determination to avoid sin... Ask for God to give you a yearning for holy living. That's really what we see with Manasseh's repentance. It's how you know it's true. That's what we see in, our, in um, this story in Ezra. I was talking to a brother um, in Christ yesterday, and uh, he, had, he had a long history of battling addiction. He's been sober for decades now. Just an amazing story. 
But he said the hardest thing is when you get out of a program, you have to cut off all of your friends. Why do people walk in addiction so, so often? Because your loved ones are actually, I mean, the ones that you think love you. That's your circle. That's all you've ever known. And so if you leave that program and you, and you walk down the same alleys where all your homies are, you're going to fall right into it. So he said, actually, the hardest thing is not the program. The hardest thing is cutting all of that off instead. And that's really what we see in these narratives, a determination to avoid sin in the future. And uh, we don't do this alone. God, God gives us the spirit and the courage to do this. Shortly after this, we get Nehemiah. Um, and Nehemiah is just, it's an exceptional book uh, about a sorrow that he has about his home city, Jerusalem. And so he asks the king's favor to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So he goes, just a decade after Ezra does, returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And he does so amazingly. He does this in 52 days. And then after the walls are rebuilt, he and Ezra are buddies. They lead um, in covenant renewal once more. But here's the thing. Sin is still happening. The reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, no matter how wholehearted they were, they don't have a lasting impact. The prophet Malachi is going to be the last Old Testament prophet. And he says that the Lord's coming has been delayed because of the sin of the people. But the prophet does affirm that the Lord will come. He, he affirms this is absolutely going to happen. And when he comes, I will send my messenger ahead of him. Um, the Hebrew word um, uh, malacha means messenger. And when you put the I at the end, that, that's a possessive. Malachi, my messenger. It's a book about sending the messenger ahead. And he actually calls the messenger to come, Elijah. Elijah? Why is he looking all the way back here at one of the ancient prophets of the northern kingdom, Elijah? What do you remember about Elijah? Do you remember how he dressed? He wore camel hair. He wore a belt of leather. Hmm. What did he tell the people to do? Repent. Turn. The Hebrew word is shuv. The Greek word is metanoia, repent. There's going to be another barren family, just like Abraham and Sarah, old in age, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is serving as a priest, and he gets a vision from God that he's going to bear a son. His wife, Elizabeth, in her old age, is going to bear a son. His name is going to be John. And the book of Mark says that when he comes, he's going to be dressing himself in camel hair, with a belt of leather, telling God's people, repent and believe the gospel. This is the messenger who's kind of, it's, it's the, it's the, the um, foreshadowing, not the foreshadowing, sort of the guarantee. The Messiah is coming right after this. And who is the one that John the Baptist points to? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. Kind of all of this, just beautiful connecting. But I think it's really important to note, at the end of, of the Old Testament and with Malachi, the state of the people's morality is no better off than it was any other time in Old Testament history. They've rebuilt the temple, sure, 
but they're awaiting all of these promises that, that God is, has given them. And so it ends with an ellipse. How is this story going to end? Malachi 4, just in closing, says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. God's people are to remember the word which he had commanded them. He is the creator God who had called Abraham out of idolatry and delivered them from Egypt with a mighty outstretched hand. He had spoken to his people in Mount Sinai and established with them um, established them as his treasured possession in the midst of the earth. And then he called his servant David and promised that his descendant would rule forever. He had later poured out his judgment upon his own people after they had disobeyed his law and cast them into exile. He had promised to return in full glory and power to forgive their sins and to create in them a new heart. This is the God of the Bible. He has designed a sovereign, redemptive plan throughout history, and he alone will bring it about. He tells us through the prophet of Isaiah, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I accomplish all my purpose. So even in the midst of that ellipse, we're still looking forward to the continuing story. That didn't have the effect that I wanted it to. The continuing story with Jesus at its center. How is God going to fulfill all of this? As I said, next week is going to be a really important week because we get to just kind of churn through this a little bit, do some theological digging on it and whatnot. But with that, um, let's praise God for these last 10 weeks and his word. You accomplish all your purposes, Lord. Your purpose will stand. You've shown us, just especially in the Old Testament, that God's people have done everything they can to thwart your purposes. And yet, Lord, you have created redemptive ends out of sinful means. And Lord, in our own lives, we know that we've done everything that we could to thwart your promises. But in your grace, you are accomplishing salvation. And so, Lord, we thank you for these reminders. Help us to walk in the hope of these promises through Jesus. Amen. Thanks, friends. Okay, we'll see you next week, our last week together. And um, let me know if you have any questions.